on today's episode of The Leadership Drives. Finding ways to divert individuals, that's what we need to focus on. Individuals with mental illness do not need to be incarcerated. If we can get them the assistance that they need prior to a situation, be able to de-escalate the situation, my hope is that those individuals don't come here. We all get to a point where we have situations that are unfortunate and we, we learn and we change and we adapt. And, and, and there's an opportunity to reach those things and those goals that you have. But the worst thing is to give up. And so hope for me is what I want to give you. Give you the opportunity to hope that there's an opportunity that today, yes, you're here, but tomorrow it's a different story and you might be in the community. Welcome to the Leadership Drives podcast. Now here's your host, Mylena Sutton. Hello, podcast family, and welcome to the Leadership Drives, the podcast where you are invited to travel with me as I endeavor to study leadership in its various forms. I want to know how and why people lead, whether on or off the clock, paid or unpaid, at home or beyond. As you probably know, so much is written about the universal aspects of leadership, but context is where the rubber meets the road. In turn, I look for leaders whose contexts are anything but textbook. My goal is to understand what leadership looks like in their unique corners of the world. Now, I know I just said that I believe that context matters greatly. This is true. What is also true is that I believe the ways in which a person's labor, whether paid or unpaid, on the clock or off the clock, at home or beyond, I believe the ways in which a person's labor supports their highest and best vision of themselves is equally, if not more so, important. The lengths to which leaders will go to connect their inner drive to what they do every single day is captivating. This nexus is so remarkable to me that I prefer to meet my podcast guests in person. Whether it means a trip across the country or a simple drive up the New Jersey Turnpike, my goal is to understand the trade-offs, the choices that people make to gain alignment between their personal and professional lives and how that impacts their ability to create visions that other people can embrace. I understand that you are the warden and you've been here, I think like 27 years-ish, but most people really have no idea what a warden does. Okay. Tell us what you do. So, I started in this career some 26 years ago. And I can tell you that 26 years ago, never in my mind did I think that one day I was going to be the warden. I had a goal, because we all set goals for ourselves, and I had a goal where I wanted to be, but it definitely wasn't the warden. And uh, about... Six years, seven years ago, I was given the opportunity to 
think about did I want to be the warden and at that time I thought that the best way for me to effect change in this institution was to do so okay. and so I decided that I was going to accept the challenge I didn't know anything about it but who does and but it's about management and, and so I felt that I had the, the skills to manage uh, we do have a large department uh, over 400 individuals work here, whether they're custody, whether they're civilian, we have vendors. Uh, at times, we've been up to 500. Uh, we hope to get there soon uh, with the hiring recession right now and just the, the financial situation across the country. Uh, we do have vacancies. And so if anyone that's listening to this podcast, uh, we are hiring. Uh, the salaries are very favorable and comparable to any law enforcement agency here in the tri-state area. So a lot of individuals do not think, okay, I'm going to become a correction officer because that is the reality. I didn't wake up one day and say, okay, I want to be in corrections. That is not what I wanted to do. However, given the opportunity, I saw that as a woman, I had more opportunity in law enforcement in the correctional field than I did anywhere else. Okay. I think my skills would have uh, helped me regardless of whether I went into the police department or whether at that time I, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be a police officer. I, I thought I wanted to be a detective. Uh, so I had a lot of things in my mind, but in, since this is a civil service job, we had to take a test, right? And so I had to take three tests. One for police, one for the sheriff, and one for corruption. And I'm like, okay, whoever calls me first, that's where I'm going. Okay. And that's what I decided to do. So here we are 26 years later, and I'm the warden. And so my day starts with every single morning, I get reports of everything that happens throughout the night. I'm on call 24 hours a day. There's not one day that I don't get a phone call from either internal affairs, the academy, because we have all these departments that still manage and have to uh, do different things and tasks. Our medical team, we provide 24-hour medical care for the inmate population. And at times, I will get a phone call. And while an individual is under the custody of the correctional facility, I am kind of pseudo the authority of that person. So when the person is taken to the hospital and they require emergency surgery, they're calling me. And I have to make that decision for that person if they're unable to make the decision for them. And that's happened, that has happened a few times where the individual was uh, very ill and unable to make the decision. And I work with the physicians at Cooper and we go ahead and we talk about that and always in the best interest of the patient and make those decisions. But those are decisions that I never thought, you know, I will have to make that decision wow. for someone. So they call you, do you call the family or do you just make no, a decision? I have to make the decision because the person is under my care and custody. Okay. So with the best advice of the uh, medical provider, I said, well, do you recommend this? And they're like, yes, we recommend that we do this for this reason and this reason. And I then say, yes, let's proceed with that. Uh, because the person is not able to make their own decision because they're, they're incapacitated. However, if they do have the capacity, then yes, they will make the decision. But never in my life did I think, okay, I'm going to be making this decision for someone yeah. in that situation. And those are the things that happen uh, and they come with it and you learn. Uh, so 
Every day, first thing I do is read the reports of what occurred the night before. I read the logs of the staff members that work in our management team, and they do a warden's report, just letting me know what happened overnight so that when I come in the first thing in the morning, I could look through that. Reading reports, just scrutinizing what happened, why things happened, can we do things better, uh, touring the facility, making sure that the facility is uh, clean, that the inmate population is receiving the care that they need, if there's something that sometimes, uh, for whatever reason, the population, incarcerated population, feels that they're not being heard, and they see me walking, they'll be like, oh, can I stop and, and, and have that conversation, right? And sometimes it's just that. They just want to have a voice and be able to speak to someone. And sometimes I'm able to resolve things a lot faster, and that's the great thing about being the warden. Because when I'm an officer, I need this fix. I have to put in a form for maintenance, right? And then maintenance has to get it. And then maintenance prioritizes what they think is more necessary that day. Whereas if you get a call from the warden that the toilet needs to be fixed, you fix it. You go fix it, right? So that's the difference where an officer has to now submit a form to say, okay, I need this maintenance issue corrected. It's prioritized by maintenance based on what the needs are for that day. Whereas if I walk through the housing area and I feel that it's necessary for me to get involved and I get involved, then that gets uh, corrected a lot faster. So those are the, the nuances of being I'm involved. I get involved with the community because I think the community needs to understand that just because individuals are behind a wall, that doesn't mean that there is no link to the community. So making sure that all faith-based organizations understand that they have a place here, that they can come into the facility and make sure that they are offering any services to the community. So in terms of volunteerism, is that what you mean or in other ways? Volunteerism, uh, you want to come talk to somebody about your faith and, and, and provide mentorship and just provide support because sometimes that's all individuals need, someone that cares for them. And so we encourage that. We encourage during the holiday season, caroling, come in. We'll, we'll, we'll walk you around and we have this system that is mobile and we take it and we do Christmas carols. So uh, I know one of the Methodist church uh, in Haddonfield says, they volunteer. And I'm like, sure, come on in. And they come in. And uh, listen, I'm open to anything. Because as long as we can meet the security concerns that I have, uh, I'm willing to open my doors. But a lot of people think, oh, those people are just behind that wall. Well, you know, those people are your family, they're your brothers, sisters, husbands, and they're going back home. And so for me is the best way to ensure that there is a good connection is to link them with the community. So we're having, as a matter of fact, we're having something... Um, it's called Love in the Time of Fentanyl, and we're going to do a movie screening. So we partner with the local library, uh, the Camden County Library, and we are going to screen this movie called Love in the Time of Fentanyl with the inmate population here in the facility, but also with the community through the library. So we're all going to be on a Zoom call. We're all going to screen this movie, and after the 80-minute movie, then we will have a discussion about what the movie, the screening of this movie, and what you know, it meant to us. We've done it in the past. Uh, we did a, a screening of a movie where uh, women who were incarcerated with children, and the movie was about 
their experience of being mothers and having children and leaving them and the trauma. And we screened it here with the female population and it was very powerful, and, but it allowed them to touch some of the things that in their life impacted them, but they, they never were able to express to someone and be able to just let it out and understand that, listen, things happen, um, but your kids still love you no matter what. And there's a there's a way back to that. And so uh, things like that is what I think drives me to hopefully change people's lives to understand that this is just a, a period in your lifetime. But this doesn't define who you are. It's just a period. And then there's a path mm-hmm. and then you continue. And we all get to a point where we have situations that are unfortunate and we, we we learn and we change and we adapt and, and, and there's an opportunity to reach those things and those goals that you have but the worst thing is to give up and so hope for me is what I want to give you. You're listening to my interview with Warden Karen Taylor of the Camden County, New Jersey Department of Corrections. Over the past 26 years, she has worked her way up through the department and is now the warden. And she uses that power to make changes and improve outcomes for people who are incarcerated in Camden, New Jersey. As I spoke with her, it became increasingly clear that her sense of compassion and connection to her fellow human being drives her to find the resources and supporters will help her as she works to help the people who come into her custody. Her goal is to make sure that they leave better off than they were when they arrived. Now, back to our conversation with Warden Taylor. So what do you say to those people who say things like, oh, can't do the time, don't do the crime. You know, it's not my job to give you a cushy experience and let you watch movies and air conditioning and lift weights all day. What do you say to that perspective? Okay. Individuals who are sentenced to, whether it's county, uh, correctional facilities or state prison time, that is the punishment, the time that you have to do. Mm -hmm. Not everything else. That's the punishment. The punishment is that you have to be uh, incarcerated and you have to leave your home and you have to be incarcerated for here in the county jail, let's say, a sentence of up to 364 days. That's the punishment. I don't have to add additional punishment to that. The punishment is that you have to come to the jail or the prison system. So that's where it stops. I'm not judge, I'm not the executioner, I'm not the the prosecutor. All I have to do is to provide a uh, humane system where, for me, if I can rehabilitate you, then you're going better back to your community than you were when you first came in. But if I just take it as, okay, not only did we punish you by giving you this time and taking away your rights, on top of that, I'm going to make it uncomfortable. What are you learning? You're really not learning anything. But if I say to you, okay, the punishment is that you must be incarcerated for this period of time. But while you're here, let's work on why you came here. Let's work on your addiction problem because maybe that's why you 
did something that you weren't not something illegal. Or maybe it's because you don't have opportunities because you don't have an education. So let's work on your GED. Let's work on trying to get you skills so that when you leave, you don't return to those systems that incarcerated you. Because, or let's say, maybe you need to deal with your anger because maybe that's part of why you're here. You are angry. You don't understand why you're angry. So let's work on maybe some behavioral therapy so that you address why you're angry. Because when you were in the community, your anger caused you to get into a fight. So now you're charged with aggravated assault or simple assault. And now you're here. So let's work on that. Because if you can control that, then you don't return. And so for me, it's, I understand that there is punishment. And the punishment is the time that you must serve. But the punishment is not what happens to you while you're here either because then that's double punishment the punishment is that i took you out of your comfort in your home and i tell you when to get up what to eat what time to you know go to bed that's the punishment the 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 loss of your freedom right the rest is for me to try to work with you if you want to to better yourself so that you don't return So mental illness is huge. That's a big component. So people say, you know, people should be incarcerated. They shouldn't do the time. Well, how do you say that to a mentally ill person when sometimes their mental illness is a precursor of what they did, what uh, what occurred? And so would you tell that to a individual that maybe doesn't have the mental capacity? We won't say that. We will take into consideration that the person has a disability. So it is all the same. And for us is, for for me personally, is we take away your freedom. That's a punishment. For me, it's not to punish you more every single day by, okay, uh, some facilities down south don't even have air conditioning. Mm-hmm. Some facilities down south don't have uh literary libraries and things like that. But for me, is looking at how do we try to rehabilitate the person so it's not, yeah, in the title it says Camden County Department of Corrections, where we have to correct the behavior, but we can't correct if we just look at punishment. Mm-hmm. The punishment is the loss of your freedom. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things you're doing to make this a more humane experience while people are here? Well, we incorporate art therapy, which I think is huge. Uh, we have a, an art therapist that works with our population because there's a lot of trauma in the individuals that are here for many reasons. So she works with the population to try to get to them to accept what that uh, trauma is. Then we also have things like we are working with the library. We have faith-based organizations that come in and work with the MA population. In addition to that, we have our uh, drug program, which is, is critical for individuals. If 60 to 70% of the population that comes in here has a drug addiction, then we have to address that. And so we try to address that through counseling, through group therapy, through medication-assisted treatment. Uh, so there's a lot of things that we try to do, uh, try to get people back into school, uh, making sure that you know if you don't have your uh, high school diploma, we're gonna go ahead and get your GED. So programs for me are critical so that we try to make the time that you that you are in crisis where you lost your your freedom that at least during that time you're productive. And so we have 
various programs where individuals can take advantage of uh, anger management, soft skills, how to write a resume, how to go to a job interview. Things that are critical uh, for us when the person leaves. Uh, so we have case managers that work with the population, making sure that they're able to uh, work on those skills and be able to take them into the community. Uh, we used to have a culinary program, which I thought was amazing, uh, but funding, of course, is a huge concern. And we used to take the individuals to the culinary school at Respond, and they would work during the day and go to school as culinary students and then graduate from the program with a culinary degree. So things like that are ways that we try. With our food service provider here, we have provided self-serve, I think it's called. It's a certification that while the individual's working here in the kitchen and uh, learning how to work in a kitchen in the community, they're able to get the certification. And then this certification, they take a test and they get their certification. They could take that certification to any restaurant. And if they're in the community, they're looking for individuals who are certified. And so their pay is better because you can start at a higher rate because you have your certification. So those are the things that we try to do. Uh, one of the constraints though now is time. Uh, in 2017, New Jersey went to a no-bail system mm -hmm. through the criminal justice reform. And before, individuals will come in and they will stay here longer. Now, unless uh, your PSA score is high, then you just you directly come to the jail. And But if your score is not high, you're, pro you're released on a summons, which is the right thing to do. What's a PSA score? Uh, it's an algorithm that gives you a score based on the severity of the crime. Uh, and so there's a lot of factors into that algorithm, and it gives the, uh, the judge an opportunity to see where the person rates. And if they rate at a certain number, then they go directly to jail. If they don't, they're given a summons and told, come back to court. And okay. so it also is based on the severity of the offense and taking into consideration also if the person has uh, committed a lot of crimes, then within the, a short period, of course, their, their rate of score will go up higher. So what it does is it keeps the individuals that are more serious offenders incarcerated and therefore the community saver. And then those individuals that don't necessarily need to be incarcerated can come back to court, which to me, it serves its purpose. Uh, but what it has done is that in the past, we had individuals that were here for longer periods of time so we could offer services. Whereas now an individual might come in on a Monday by Tuesday morning, they're gone. Wow. Okay. So even though the PSA score was high, uh, they were incarcerated, but the next morning they saw the judge, the judge reviewed uh, the whole entire matter and said, you know what, I'm going to let you go and let them go okay. come back to court. Or the PSA score is pretty high and says, nah, you know what, we're going to keep you and you stay here. So originally, when the police officer sees the scores, if it's a high score, the police officer has to remand them to the county jail. If it's a low score, they could just give them a summons and say, come back to court. Got it. So you have almost 
I'm going to say two different populations here. I'm going to call them the fast turnovers and then the long-termers. Yes. And you can't really plan that well for the fast turnovers because we don't know how long they're here. We do not know. Uh, so for those individuals focusing on their drug addiction and mental health is critical. So we try to focus on those two things. The individual that's going to be here longer is an individual that has a more serious offense and they're here. The problem with that population is that, again, you could go to court today and be released. Mm -hmm. uh, or you could take a plea and now you're going to state prison, or you could take a plea and now you've done your time because you've been here six months and you've done your time and then get released. So again, planning and prepping for those individuals is, is a lot it's more difficult because we don't know when they're leaving. Uh, we used to have a population of about 10% that was a county sentence population, but now we only have about 3%. And so that small 3% stays here maybe for 90 days, 60 days, 180 days, depending on the census. But we utilize that population to uh, work together and creating programs for them because they're going to be here a little bit longer. So... When you're dealing with this fast turnover group and then you got this longer tenure group, how do you um, plan for resources? I heard you mention a, a moment ago, um, planning some of the humane services, you know, looking at the cost factor. Is all of your money from taxpayers? Do you get any grant funds? Like, where do you get your resources to do these things? So we have a budget that the taxpayers uh, supplement the facility with and so we have to be very careful on how we spend that money because at the end of the day it's taxpayer money right and so we have to be very prudent so we spend it on salaries of course we spend it on medical care uh, food service uh, you know the lights the taxes of this facility <laughs> however then we have the the volunteer work where we work with a lot of community partners and get a lot of those volunteer services at no cost because they're volunteer. And then we have an opportunity to apply for grants. So in the last, I would say, four years, five years, we received more than five to six million dollars in grants. And that has managed uh, to, uh, that has allowed us to be able to offer all forms of medication assisted treatment for addiction. It has allowed us to work with the population that has a co-occurring condition of mental health and addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, so we get grants from SAMHSA, we get grants from the DOC from, and also from the New Jersey Department of Health that allows us to utilize those funds for those purposes. And so, uh, as I was saying earlier today, yesterday we had the White House here and they wanted to uh, tour the facility and see the program that we have. And the reason is that we have been very fortunate in receiving grants that allow us to do the work that we do. And so um, opportunities like that is we have to leverage them because we understand that a lot of agencies are applying for the same grant. And so trying to be creative, what can we do? And so we are in the process of applying for a grant and we hope to get some funding to do a a reentry center. So the vision is to have an area uh, within the facility, but outside of the secure area of the facility that individuals can access once they leave the facility. Okay. Uh, 
I, I know that at times individuals feel more comfortable coming back to us and asking for help, which kind of is, is interesting. But they trust the facility to because they for the period that they've been here, we've offered those services. So they trust that we will continue to offer that service. So when you say a reentry center, what popped into my head the way you described it, almost kind of like a community center support program is that what you're getting at something like that um community but it's more for the individuals that have had in the past incarcerated have been incarcerated so any individual and right now for example we do our ids right you might five six years ago maybe you were here incarcerated at this correctional facility and then for whatever reason you lost your id you can come to our front door, and if we can find you in our system and we can verify that's who you are through your fingerprints and our documentation, we will give you our county ID. So now that you can use your the ID that we give you to go get the rest of your documents that maybe you lost uh, for various reasons. Uh, so homelessness has been a challenge, and so we're looking at the reentry center as an opportunity to be able to come to us Let's see how we can help you in finding stable housing. How can we help you in getting you back into a program, whether it's AA, where it's, uh, whether it's medication-assisted treatment. Uh, you know, you're having problems with reaching a good case manager or program for your mental illness. Let's work with you. And so I want to be able to open it and have the different agencies that work with the populations and give them office hours in the center so that you know if i have to go see my probation officer i could i don't have to go to cherry hill i could come right here and see the probation officer during the office hours that they have for probation or working with motor vehicles and saying can you guys maybe once a month have hours for individuals to come and maybe get their driver's license through a a mobile mobile I guess, motor vehicle agency that they come. And so just being creative and, and trying to take away those barriers because individuals every single day, specifically on the, in the addictions, I guess, who are addicted, those individuals, every morning they get up and the first thing they're thinking about is how am I, how can I fail today, right? How, how am I, how could I, you know, forget the program and go get high? And... So they get up every single morning and try to avoid that. And then they have to deal with everything in their life. And if I don't have ID and I can't uh, manage to get an ID, well, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and get high. Well, you know what? No, you're not because here's the ID. Get, you know, go get yourself a job. Let's go get services. Let's get you into a program. And so changing that mindset, we have a young man that uh, was in, was, in our we have a pilot house for housing and so proud of him he has problems with addiction and mental illness and he had a setback and instead of going to use he went back to the house hmm. and he called a case manager and he said i'm having a hard time mm -hmm. because of this situation and she said okay i'll be right there and she went and met with him and she said, I am so proud of you because instead of just leaving the house and going to a, a area and buying drugs and self-medicating, mm -hmm. you instead came back to the house and you utilized your resources. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, I didn't think of it that way. And she said, but that's what we want you to do. That's exactly what you, we want you to do. We want you to come back to the house because it's a safe space for you where there is no drugs. And let's work with you on, you know, reinforcing the things that you need so that you continue to be successful. So tell me a little bit about this house, <clears throat> because um, when you said come back, I'm thinking come back. He wasn't brought back as an arrested. He came back. Mm-hmm. So tell me about this house. So one of the things that we realized very early on is that one of the huge barriers is homelessness. Uh, you might have a house and somewhere to stay when you first were arrested, but maybe while you were incarcerated, you lost your house or you've burned so many bridges that you no longer have a place to go. And one of the questions we ask upon booking is, are you homeless or do you, do you have stable housing? And sometimes people are very honest and say, no, I don't. Uh, we go back at it during classification. Uh, so there's three areas where we definitely ask the question, are you homeless? Do you need housing? Uh, because we want to identify those individuals right away. Uh, so at times individuals come into the correctional facility and when they're ready to be released they do not have anywhere to go and they don't want to go to a shelter but uh, if they have to they will but they really don't and we identify that as a a need and decided that we can fund as a pilot through a pilot program to see how successful or to see or ver- and co- confirm what we thought we knew, which was there's a need. Mm-hmm. And so we pilot this uh, house where we're working with a vendor and the vendor rents us the house with uh, six beds in there and the house is completely under the Department of Corrections, and it's a home. It's, it's a home. It has a kitchen, a living room, three bedrooms, and the individuals go there upon release. They don't have to stay. They're free. Mm-hmm. But if you need a home and you need a bed tonight, here you are. You don't have to worry about, I don't have nowhere to go. So the first thing I'm going to go is, let me go get high, mm-hmm. right? To kind of self-medicate myself and not have to deal with that uh, situation. And we're like, no, you don't have to go do that. If you need home, a home, a place to stay, whether it's one day, whether it's a week, we have a house for you. And so we let them know right away. Once they tell us that they're homeless, we start having that conversation and we're like, listen, we have a place for you to go. Uh, You don't have to worry about Let's worry more about getting you on our program, getting you on the medication, getting you ready, so that when it's time for you to leave, don't worry, we have a home. And so we take them over, and the the star says to me, I had to have the conversation with them, and said, listen, today you're seeing me in this uniform, right? But don't think that you're incarcerated. It's just that this is my uniform that I have every single day. But my job is to drive you to the house. Mm -hmm. But at any time, you can leave. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's been successful because individuals work with our case manager to find more permanent housing. 
they also work with the case manager for employment. They work with the case manager to make sure they stay on their uh, treatment program. And so for us, it's been very successful in allowing the people that go to the house to have an opportunity to continue on the program without the fear of not having somewhere to stay. So the people who take advantage of that program, um, first let me back up. In terms of the number of people who come in, what percentage of them do you think are homeless or is homeless? I don't have that number, but I can get you that number because uh, when we did a survey of uh, our jail management system, we found that at that time, we had over 900 individuals here in the correctional facility and about 67 identified as homeless, mm-hmm. right? And that number went down, it goes up, depending on the self-identification of the person. Uh, sometimes they say, I am homeless, and they're truly homeless, and sometimes they say, well, I just don't have a place to stay tonight, but if you give me some time, I can't find a place. Uh, so just working with them. So when somebody is homeless and it's time for them to be released, before you got the house, would you just let them out in the community? Like when you, because in my mind, I, I have a gap. So I'm getting released. I'm homeless. Do I get any money? Am I temporarily put in a hotel somewhere? Like, what happens? So what happens is, or what was happening is, uh, we work with county agencies Mm -hmm. to try to find a hotel or a shelter bed for the person. Because our goal is not to just open the door and say, thank you very much, see you. Uh, No, that's not our goal. Our goal is to provide a safe environment. And so working with our shelters, working with uh, our homeless division for Camden County uh, to put you somewhere. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that uh, a lot of the population have gone to shelters and they don't particularly care for them for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And uh, they don't feel safe. And I get that, but um, for us, it was finding a way that we can address the homelessness situation and at the same time, keep the individuals on a program. Some houses do not allow people that have medication-assisted treatment to be in the house. Mm -hmm. Sometimes uh, some shelters don't allow or are hesitant to deal with individuals with mental illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, ha- we had a, a gentleman that had has mental illness and I we took him to the shelter and he, the lights were too much for him. Mm-hmm. The the noise was too much and he was like, No, I can't I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, okay, so we try to find a, an, an alternative. But if he had the house, he has somewhere to go. He has somewhere to go mm-hmm. and that gives us time. So for us, time is is essential because it gives us the opportunity to find resources for the person. And having the house, now we don't have to worry about rushing because at times I don't know when the person is leaving. Mm -hmm. So today you go to court and I think, okay, maybe next month they'll get sentenced or or you can go to court and take a plea today and be released. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, oh, okay, so let's now we start working and now we're rushing. But now we don't have to rush because if you're homeless, stay at the house. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can leave whenever you want, but stay at the house and then give us a little bit of time. 
And with time, we're able to offer more services. So you were saying that they would work with your case manager. So when they do that, do they come back to the actual jail here for Ooh. like medically assisted medication or do they get everything at the house? They get everything at the house. Okay. You are no longer incarcerated. So we embedded a case manager at the house. Okay. Uh, you're not incarcerated. You can leave at any time. You don't have to take our resources. We have some individuals that have utilized the house for a, a couple days. We have some individuals that have used the house for three months Okay. Uh, because we understand there's different needs and it's not... Um, it's individualized and the person is, as long as you're working with the case manager, because it's not for you to be there forever and ever, you know, it's a temporary accommodation until we can find a permanent solution to your house uh, housing. And so the case manager will work with the person, making sure you're looking for permanent housing, making sure that you're looking for employment. And when we get that person that just thinks that, you know, we have one that just thought, I'm just going to stay in the house. We're like, mm -mm, that's not how this works. That's not how it works. You got to work with the case manager and this is temporary housing mm -hmm. and you got to make the effort. And when he realized that, okay, I got to make the effort, he started making the effort and he was able to find employment. And once he found employment, he went and said, you know what? I got my place. Okay, great. Terrific. And uh, we make sure it's near a bus route. We work with, um, our sustainability for Camden County, and they donated a couple of bicycles. So there's a couple of bicycles because if people uh, have to take the bus, great. But if they have a little farther to go from the bus route, there's a bike, and they offered us uh, a couple bikes, and we put them in the house, and we tell the the, the participants that you know if you need a bike when you leave, just let us know. We'll, you will let either let you take one of the bikes or get another one from sustainability, but just let us know. Mm -hmm. And so we keep certain bikes there just for that purpose so they can utilize it around the area and have some type of transportation. Uh, additionally, the house has a, a, uh, a safe, a, medica a medication safe for those individuals that are medications and their medication is uh, secured and they have access to it, but no one else. So uh, it allows them to keep their medication in a safe environment and be able to utilize it as they need it. So, so far, I think what I've heard you say is that addiction and homelessness are two of your major issues. If you had to say that there was a trinity that keeps people in a cycle, what would you say that third thing is? Mental health. Mental health. Yeah. So many individuals for many, many reasons either have a co-occurring condition of mental health illness and also addiction. And sometimes their mental illness is managed through addiction. addiction. Okay. And sometimes trauma that has not been dealt with triggers addiction so there's a lot yeah so that to me is the trinity uh, dealing with individuals that have co-occurring conditions individuals that are homeless individuals that maybe are just even now we're seeing more and more little and you know i hope that we can find a way to uh, curtail individuals on the spectrum coming in because it's not necessarily this is not a place for an individual with in the autism spectrum. So finding ways to divert individuals, that's what we need to focus on. Individuals with mental illness do not need to be incarcerated. If we can get them the assistance that they need prior to a situation, be able to de-escalate the situation, my hope is that those individuals don't come here. You have just listened to part one of our interview with Warden Karen Taylor. 
Stay tuned for part two. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Drives podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe, share with your family and friends, and be sure to tune in to the next episode of the Leadership Drives.